0: Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and
1: the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of BER.
0: Welcome to a new episode of Sharai, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin.
1: And my name is Serena Tolino.
0: In this episode, we are delighted to have as guest Rosalia Garipova of the Nazarbayev University. Welcome, Rosalia.
2: Hi, Gianluca. Hi, Serena. And thank you for inviting me.
1: Welcome also from my side. So, Rosalia, tell us something more about your hobbies or what do you like to
2: do in your free time? I live in the capital of Kazakhstan, in the city of Nur-Sultan, where the snow stays for almost five months of the year. I really enjoy winter sports, and I, with my family, go cross-country skiing very often. The ski club in the Central Park prepares the ski trails in early November, as soon as it starts snowing. We also skied and tube on the Ishim River, which freezes in winter.
0: Rosalia, in the past, you have worked on the legality of remarriage in 19th century Russia. And as a result, you have looked into what you called illegal cohabitations. That's a way of engaging with the relation between, in a way, formal and informal law. Can you tell us how you are looking at that phenomenon and if that is particularly accentuated in the 19th century or or it actually carries over closer to us? Legality of marriage and
2: divorce is the central theme of my first book project. And I'm looking at how the idea of the legality of marriage changed over the 19th and early 20th century under Russian imperial rule. The issue with illegal cohabitations became a serious problem, especially in the second half of the 19th century, as a result of Muslim women being stuck in their marriages that practically ended, but legally couldn't be annulled. I especially looked at the cases of missing husbands who were exiled to Siberia, usually for committing a crime with the loss of all rights and privileges according to Russian imperial law. And this almost always meant that the exiles would stay there until the rest of their lives. Other cases involved the wives of the husbands who went to other provinces and cities in search for employment opportunities and didn't come back for years. And in these cases... These women were anchored in their marriages without being able to remarry and many of them began to live in the so-called illegal cohabitation. Now, the case of disappeared husbands and abandoned wives is not new in the modern Islamic history and many Muslim societies experience this problem, especially with modernity bringing railroads and men leaving for other places to find work. We see that Muslim judges employ different methods of flexibility to release women out of these marriages. However, the situation with these women in the Russian imperial case is unique because women whose husbands were exiled with the loss of all rights were not able to divorce and remarry according to Russian imperial law. Muslim scholars in early 19th century, and we have an example of a prominent Ahund Fatulal orawi, for example, Uh, So Muslim scholars were able to solve this issue by granting these women divorce on the basis of non-provision, despite the fact that the Volga Raus was traditionally a Hanafi region. But starting with the late 1820s and 1830s, uh, the Orenburg Assembly, the Orenburg Muslim Spiritual Assembly, the institution established by the imperial authorities in the late 18th century, began to assume its functions more directly as a court of appeal, uh, and it starts controlling all divorce cases related to the wives of the exiles. And when the Russian state prohibited divorce to the wives of the exiles who went to Siberia with the loss of all rights, the Orenburg Assembly refused to grant these women the right of divorce. Well, some of these women could marry other men, according to Islamic law, by finding an authoritative elder or unlicensed mullah to perform their marriage. But the state didn't recognize these marriages, because according to Russian imperial law, only state-licensed imams had the right to perform Muslim marriages. Otherwise, they were considered illegal. Some licensed mullahs agreed to perform such marriages without official recording or for some money, but others refused uh, because this could lead to the punishment of a mullah, He could sim- be simply dismissed from his job. Uh, and by the 1890s, some prominent religious scholars were realizing that this issue should be solved within the Islamic legal tradition without reference to Russian imperial law. And they were right. After World War I, where many Muslim soldiers were conscripted and perished in the war, their wives continued to write petitions to the Orenburg Assembly, which was renamed as the Central Spiritual Directorate of Muslims of Inner Russia at the time, asking to grant them divorce and permission to remarry according to Sharia. And the administration, um, the director finally issued this fatwa only in 1925.
1: Another aspect that comes quite clear in the um, in the articles you shared with us from your previous research is the relation between imperial law and Islamic law, and the way imperial law helped to reshape and to re understand in the Russian Empire Islamic law. Could you maybe share us something about that with us?
2: I think marital age is one of the cases that shows this dynamic. Russian imperial state introduces the imperial law regulating marriage age for the Muslim community in 1835. The law sets the same minimum marriage age that was valid for the Russian Orthodox population, 16 for brides and 18 for grooms, and also made registration of births and marriages compulsory for the Muslim community, obliging mullahs and dachuns to properly register these rights. Throughout the 19th century, Muslims found different ways to circumvent this law, when necessary, by making forgeries in in registering data or by performing marriage ceremony twice. But we can also observe that Muslims were also gradually changing their attitudes towards marrying their daughters earlier than 16. We can see from petitions that by the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, Mumwas often refused to perform underage marriages because the state criminalized them. Performing such marriage carried with itself a risk of losing a job. At the beginning of the 20th century, when Muslims discussed the reform of different aspects of family law, marriage age was not even a serious issue, not even brought in Jadid periodical press. It was not without exception, of course, but it seems that Tata's perception about early marriage also underwent transformation.
0: But you're also very interested in contemporary matters. And so um, you have recently published an article looking at the trajectory of Rashida Ishaki, a contemporary female religious authority in Kazan. What drew you to this more contemporary figure? And what can she tell us about Muslims in Tatarstan, in contemporary Tatarstan?
2: First of all, many women played important and conscious roles in the transmission of religious knowledge throughout the Soviet period, including in the periods of harsh repressions when male religious elite was largely exiled, repressed as Kuvaks and as clerics, or perished in the Great Patriotic War. Also, maintaining religious tradition and religious knowledge was very important to people, and this was done not through the knowledge of madrasa education, but through other, perhaps less sophisticated, but not less important practices, such as saying a basic prayer, such as Bismillah, telling a Sufi inspired story, visiting a graveyard of a relative or an awliya, cooking special food, and asking the only existing in the neighborhood person to recite the Quran during the wakes meals, uh, the wakes. Um, the meals devoted to the souls of the deceased.
1: Thank you for this fascinating overview on your uh, previous research. Now we would like to ask you, what are you going to present us uh, in London?
2: I'm going to present on the question of marital consent in the 19th and early 20th century Russia. Interestingly, a woman's consent at marriage was one of the problems that was brought in the old Russia's Muslim Women's Congress in 1917, and is an issue which is reflected in pre-Soviet Tatar literature.
0: Um, you describe the question of bridal consent to marriage as quote a social problem end of quote in your abstract. How are you looking at that, and uh, what made you choose this uh, characterization?
2: This was the issue that presents a tension between customary practice and Islamic law. Therefore, it also became an important element of the legality of marriage. So, it became a social problem because previously it was resolved within the family in different ways. A couple could arrange the girl's abduction, or she could negotiate this with her parents, or in the worst cases, she had to adjust to a wife with a man whom her parents chose, uh, but in 1840, the Orenberg Assembly Mufti and Qadis compiled a set of rules for the ulama to follow while performing a marriage ceremony, and these rules included marital consent as an aspect of the legality of marriage. And furthermore, this led to a practice by which women could claim their marriage invalid if undertaken without her consent, uh, without their consent. The possibility of appeal itself destabilize the family relationships and at the same time enhance the agency of women and obtaining a desirable solution.
1: Thank you a lot for having taken the time to share uh, your research with us today
2: and looking forward to seeing you in London.
1: Bye.
0: Thank you, Rosalia.
2: Thank you for inviting me to speak and share my research at this podcast. Bye.